The reading today is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbours and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the Gospel of Christ. Praise to Christ the Word. Thanks, Anne. Uh, tricky passage this morning. I, th- I think the last time I spoke, I had cast out the immoral brother. So today it's love your enemy. I have to thank Jay for giving me these passages. Very kind. Um, uh, let me pray before we tackle it. Uh, Father God, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that it is truth. Uh, help us to be always humble under your word, never, never arrogant over your word, thinking we know best. Uh, help us to learn from it, help us to apply it in our lives as, as we know we need to. Amen. Uh, there, was, there was a book written a, a few years ago simply called The 100. I don't know if you've read it. It's, it's a list, it's a, a ranked list of the 100 most influential people in history. The most influential people in history. And the author for it, a a guy called Michael Hart, uh, he explained that it's not a list of the greatest people in history uh, or the best people in history, rather a list of the most influential people in history, those who have had the most influence. Uh, I'm I'm not sure who you think would be top of the list or who you think would be there, but number one was not Jesus. The second most influential person in history was not Jesus. Jesus either. According to the author, Jesus takes out the bronze medal. Bronze medal, Jesus enters the list in third position. Uh, Any thoughts on who was number one? Who? Oprah Winfrey? Maybe. Toss up Oprah Winfrey, Jesus? No, she was, didn't make the list. Any other thoughts? Socrates? No, no. Who? No. No. Donald Trump, no one said good. Um, Muhammad, who said that? Very good, yes, well done. According to the author, the guy Michael Hart, the most influential person in history was Muhammad. Uh, Second place, Jesus was third. Muhammad number one. Second was Isaac Newton, ahead of Jesus. 
Pretty good. Uh, if you're interested, Buddha was fourth, Confucius was fifth, and Paul the Apostle was sixth. Some people put him higher. Now, um, Michael Hart, he, he's not a Christian or a Muslim. Uh, he's put Muhammad first because in his observation of Muslims and Christians, Muhammad's got far more influence over the life of Mus- lives of Muslims than Jesus does over the lives of Christians. Think about that for a second. He's talking about Jesus Christ's lack of influence on Christians. He's not talking about Jesus' lack of influence on non-believers. What he's saying is that Christians, from his observations, don't widely follow or believe or take heed of their supposed Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. And one of the main reasons he gives is our passage today. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. They're challenging commands, aren't they? And they raise a stack of questions and probably a few objections from people. Uh, But before we move on, it's probably worth getting our bearings, briefly looking at where our passage sits in Jesus' ministry. Uh, We're in chapter 5 of Matthew, and at the start of chapter 5, it's the start of the famous Sermon on the Mount. You may have heard of it. Uh, Where Jesus, he's gathered his disciples to teach them about what the kingdom of God is like and how those in this kingdom should act. And his teaching throughout the Sermon on the Mount, it's got two main purposes. First of all, it's teaching how to live, how to really live and act as followers of God. But also it's showing how we don't live, how we don't do this, how we don't stack up to this, how we we fail at doing this. And, And it shines the spotlights onto our lives in ways which are incredibly uncomfortable. If you're reading the Sermon on the Mount and you don't get a sense of unease or nervousness, then you're really not reading it carefully enough. You're not taking it seriously enough. C.S. Lewis, the famous Christian author, he was once asked if he liked the Sermon on the Mount. And he replied, who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. And it's because throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus ramps up the standards in order to get to the heart of God's law where it's not a matter of simply just obeying the letter of the law, but getting to the heart of it, getting to the spirit of God's law. So Jesus is showing us how we must live as followers of God and in the process highlighting how we fail at doing this. And now Jesus, he's illustrated this in various ways. He's looked at several issues already. He's looked at uh, murder and anger. He's looked at adultery and lust, a divorce, monogamy. He's looked at oaths and faithfulness. And now he's come to our verse, uh, verse 38. He says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is, this is a great example, this first one, of, of how the rules can be twisted to produce the opposite effect of what they're actually intended. 
Uh, we've heard that saying before, haven't we? An eye for an eye. It's a common phrase. We've heard it often. And, and it normally means they want revenge. An eye for an eye, mate. I'm watching you. But in the Old Testament law, the law was there to actually stop revenge. And, and especially the type of revenge that keeps escalating and building and building up. Uh, like a gang war, you, you know, where one side has an insult, so then the other side has a bashing. And then the other side has a drive-by and it keeps ramping up and going on and on. Uh, all the stories that we know of the, the honour feuds in um, late 1900s um, rural America with the Hatfields and the McCoys having a feud and all that. And banjos, I'm assuming. I don't know. And it's where the violence wouldn't stop because each new offence brought new shame on the victim's family and then they'd have to retaliate and defend their honour. So God's law was there to that punishment. It said punishment had to be eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Actually, if you go back to the Old Testament, it says fracture for fracture. So I don't know how they work that specifically, but fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I hope you can see the intention of it. It's limited and it's proportionate, eye for an eye, so that justice would be done and so that revenge would stop. It was to limit the idea of payback. Uh, but so often then and now we know that that saying is now used to justify revenge. So what does Jesus say? He says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Uh, it's important to know what Jesus is not saying here and what he is saying here, isn't it? Uh, is he saying that there's to be no resistance to evil in the world? That there should be no police, there should be no judges, uh, there should be no soldiers, there should be no prison guards, there should be no prisons. Is that what Jesus is saying? Um, no, I, I think we will kind of agree. No, he's not saying that. Jesus, he can't be encouraging evil or injustice in the world. God is a God of justice. And the Bible is very clear. It teaches that the laws of the country that you live in is often a way that God's justice is carried out. And we know that ultimately his perfect justice is going to be carried out one day eventually. Now, what, what it's teaching here is at much more a personal level. Jesus is speaking here to his followers and to us today as individuals on a personal level. What attitude we're to have when we're wronged. And all the examples from verse 39 to 42 that he gives to, to kind of address that, they're, they're all addressed to you singular, not you as a group, but you singular. And in essence it's saying when confronted with evil, when you're being wronged, you must not retaliate. You mustn't seek revenge. But not only that, you must seek the good of those who have wronged you. And that's what's happening in the example, the first example he gives, isn't it? If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. Uh, we, we know the, the phrase, a slap on the cheek, it's to do with, with honour, isn't it? You say, like, oh, it's such a slap in the face that they did that. You go, oh, can't believe they did that. What we mean is I was so offended, I, I was so let down by that, I can't believe they did that. I thought I trusted them. And Jesus is saying, don't retaliate. Turn the other cheek, rather be embarrassed or, or let down, rather that than to stand up for your perceived rights and hurt someone in the process. 
He gives three more examples to back that up. Uh, Go give the extra cloak, go the extra mile, uh, give willingly without gain. But he's not limiting us to these examples, is he? They're just there to highlight the heart attitude that we're to have in the face of wrongs being done to us. I've actually found it quite hard to, to prepare this talk because I, so, I constantly want to soften it down. I want to soften Jesus' teaching. I want to make excuses. I want to justify things. I want to, I want to say, yeah, but, but I want to do it now and I so often want to do it in my life. It's way too easy to justify the idea that we don't have to pay attention to what he says, that somehow our circumstances are special that our reactions are warranted. And, and we see it that the teachings of Jesus here, they're just so countercultural, aren't they? They're counter to the society, society that we live in, but they're also counter to what feels natural, that, that we want to qualify them out of existence because they just feel so natural. When I'm wronged, I want to hit back. I want to retaliate. But when I do it, it shows that Jesus has little influence in my life. Have a think of times when you've been wronged. Times when you've been lied to. Times when you've been hurt. When people have belittled you. People who have taken advantage of you. People who have betrayed you. Our passage today it shows us what the appropriate response is when we are wronged. And Jesus is telling us to do something completely unnatural here. Jesus is calling on his people to show grace. Grace, undeserved kindness to others. If you're familiar with uh, Victor Hugo's Lemis, I wasn't going to say Les Miserables because I always put a sleeve French accent on and say, so, no, no, no. We all know Les Mis. It's a touching illustration of this grace, isn't it? Uh, one of the main characters, Jean Valjean. I put the French accent on there. But, uh, Jean Valjean, he's one of the main characters. He, in an, he spent 19 years in prison uh, for stealing bread to feed his family. He gets out of prison and he's facing rejection from society, being an ex-con. Uh, but he's shown kindness by a bishop who takes him in and gives him shelter. But Jean Valjean beats him and robs him, repaying his kindness. But he's caught, and the police bring him back to the bishop to face the consequences. Now, now the bishop could have treated him in in one of three ways, just like how we can treat people, just like how God can treat us. He could have treated Valjean with justice, couldn't he? Justice seems totally fair. Jean Valjean could have gone, you've caught him, he deserves to go to prison, put him away. Justice. The bishop could have treated Valjean with mercy. He could have said, well, maybe return the spoons and I won't press any charges. I'll treat you with mercy. Could have treated him with justice or with mercy, but the bishop demonstrates neither justice nor mercy, but instead he treats Valjean with grace. If you know the story... He tells Valjean off for forgetting to also take the candlesticks as well as the spoons that he's stolen. 
He tells him off for forgetting them, forgetting the candlesticks that he'd been given. And he reminds Valjean of his promise to use the silver to become an honest man. And it leaves Valjean crying out, why? What have I done? Why are you doing this? Undeserved kindness. We have to remember we need to be people builders, not people destroyers. And it's going to take wisdom to know how to do that in your situation. You'll know your situation best. But that has to be the aim. Building of people, not destroying of people. And Jesus continues in our passage. He elaborates on this further. He flushes that out more, fleshes that out more. In verse 43 he says, Oh, you've heard it said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Quite familiar with that, aren't we? But the first half of the instruction, love your neighbour, hate your enemy, the first half of that, that's totally from the Old Testament law. But the, the Pharisees had kind of assumed the second half. If we love our neighbour, well, surely we must hate our enemies. But Jesus commands grace again. Not just to love our friends, not, not love for people like that, but we need to have love for people who really we've got absolutely no reason to love. He tells us to love our enemies. I don't know who your enemies are. I don't know if they're Twitter people, person at school, person at work, family members. But he's telling us to love our enemies, to love those who hate us, to pray for those who are actively seeking us harm. And the, the whole thing, it's a kind of an oxymoron too, isn't it? It's the definition of, of an enemy is someone who doesn't deserve our love. How can you love an enemy? And more than that, it's highlighting that it's not passive love, is it? It's not just avoiding them, not just saying, well, I'm not going to speak to them anymore and avoid them, or, or I'm not going to message them. Rather, our attitude is to be active. We're to do good to our enemies. We're to pray for them and for their good. We're to show undeserved love. And it's because that's what God does. In verse 45, it says, He causes the sun to rise on both the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It would be a weird world if the rain only fell and the sun only shone on Christian farms. It would be a very strange place to walk. Weather forecast would be very strange too. don't know. But there would also be chaos in our relationships if we Christians only loved our friends, if we only returned love because we've been loved, or if we only prayed for those who just did good for us and ignored those who didn't do anything else. Now, we're to love in such a sacrificial way because we're to be a reflection of God's love. God loves because he is love. He doesn't love because we're lovable. His love for us isn't a deserved love, of course. It's a gracious love. And when we love our enemies, we show that we're like him. We're acting as his children. But it's easier said than done, isn't it? And this is usually the bit, and I, I know I do it myself, where, again, we make excuses. 
where we remember what someone's done to us or said to us or said about us or, or even worse sometimes it feels like doing those things to people that we love and care about. Like when your children tell you of hurtful things said to them at school, it's so much easier to get angry than if the same things were said to you. Or if someone spreads lies and rumours about your husband or your wife or someone close to you, how easy it is to feel so more outraged than if it was done to you. I feel myself almost gripping the thing at the moment. And we feel justified when we want to think about treating those people harshly. But verse 44, Jesus tells us, to love them and pray for them. So how do we do this? Uh, to start with, it really helps us to, to understand what Jesus is meaning by love here and, and what we understand love to be. We often get it confused. Often we associate love with emotions, you know, the, the beating heart, the quickening of breath, the, the fluttering of eyelashes. I won't do that. Uh, Becky and I, my wife, once came across an, an outdoor wedding one time. We were just strolling along, found an outdoor wedding, and the vows that the couples shared with each other said, I will be yours as long as our love continues to blaze brightly. People end marriages because they don't feel in love with one another anymore. But the Bible doesn't treat love like that, does it? Love's not feelings first in the Bible. Love is action. Jesus isn't saying, feel nice things about your enemies. He's saying, move towards them, move, do stuff towards them in a way which is good. Move towards them in ways that are good. He's saying, pray for them. You know, praying for them is probably, it seems really, really simple, but it's probably a major thing that you can be doing for them. It's so hard to keep hostile feelings and anger towards someone when you're genuinely praying to God for them. And you'll be surprised. Feelings can often follow actions. If you act in a way continually, your feelings can line up over time. So Jesus, he's given us the standard we need to live by. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How are you going with this? I bet you're glad you came to St. Stephen's this morning, aren't you? Here for a nice uplifting message and this is what you get. But the bad news is we haven't even gotten to the last verse yet. After all Jesus, after all, all the things that Jesus has been saying, we're kind of hoping him, for him to say something like, now, I know this is going to be hard, but just do your best. But instead we get verse 48. He says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And if anyone can hear that or read that without a sense of crushing guilt, then something's a bit wrong. But a slightly, a slightly more literal translation apparently though I was looking at says you will be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect and I, and I think reading it this way helps us to kind of understand what this last verse is talking about without us <laughs> feeling despair too much it can kind of be read as a bit of a triple whammy you will be perfect 
we can get the command on how to live according to God's standards, like we saw. You will be perfect. But it can also be read as getting a, a sort of sense of insight into God's nature, that if we love in this kind of way, then we'll be loving in a good and perfect way like our Heavenly Father does. It, it helps us see God's love. When you love this way, you'll be loving perfectly like God does. But ultimately, and definitely the most important, is that through the Sermon on the Mount and through our passage in particular, we're pointed to the one that will make us perfect one day. It's the one who prayed for those who persecuted him. Father, forgive them. It's the one who gave his life for sinners who gave his life for those who are powerless, who gave his life for the ungodly, who gave his life for his enemies. I said at the start of our Michael Hart's book, 100 Most Influential People, at, at the end of his opening chapter in his book, he writes about the command to love your enemies. He says this. He says, These are surely among the most remarkable and original ethical ideas ever presented. If they were widely followed, I would have no hesitation in placing Jesus first in this book. But the truth is that they are not followed. Indeed, they're not even actually generally accepted. Most Christians consider the injunction to love your enemy is at most an ideal which might be realised in some perfect world, but one which is not a reasonable guide to conduct in the actual world that we live in. We don't normally practise love for our enemies, we do not expect others to practice it, and we do not teach our children to practice it. And he ends with, Jesus' most distinctive teaching, therefore, remains an intriguing but basically untried suggestion. But what Michael Hart didn't care to see was the one who did follow this perfectly. The one person in history who lived up to the standards when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we will naturally feel slightly down about ourselves. But that should pale into nothing compared to the gratitude that we feel for Jesus. Let me pray. Father God, uh, help us to always be challenged by your word. Help us to think of those who we really struggle to put this into practice with. Those we consider our enemies, those who persecute us, those who wrong us. Help us to love like you love. Help us to turn the other cheek. Help us to act in ways that are loving towards people. And please, Father, help us continue to pray. Help us be shaped by your word and help us always to, to be led to you through it. Amen.